My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Today, I'm happy to announce we have a sponsor, which is Macmillan LLP, a Canadian leading business law firm with an international presence and client base. The firm has offices in Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Ottawa, Montreal, and Hong Kong, and specializes in business law, capital markets and securities regulation, mergers and acquisitions, natural resource law, and many other things. I would like in particular to thank our legal counsel, Roland Hurst, who is a leading capital markets, M&A, and mining lawyer at the law firm of Macmillan based here in Vancouver. Roland acts as a trusted advisor to mining companies, entrepreneurs, and financiers, assisting them with their domestic and international mining projects. Roland's done a lot of work for Resource Insider. We've been very happy with the things that he's done and Macmillan in general. So we're very proud to have them as a sponsor here at Resource Insider today. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider podcast. This is Jamie Keach. And today on the podcast, we got to talk to a friend of mine, a gentleman named Brandon Duncan. Now, I've known Brandon for... Just over 10 years from now, and we worked together in one of my first jobs that I ever had up in the Yukon, and we were working in a very remote um, place of the territory uh, on a fly-in bush camp on a uranium exploration project. And you know, Brandon is not the CEO of a mining company. He's not a geologist or an engineer or an accountant who we normally have on here. Uh, Brandon is the founder and CEO, or president rather, of a company called Backcountry Resources. And what Backcountry Resources does is they provide all the support that an exploration company or mining company needs to get things done up in uh, northern Canada. So specifically uh, the Yukon Territory, um, the Northwest Territories, and I believe they've done some work in Alaska now as well. And what that often involves is logistics and planning. It involves going into these highly remote locations and building camps. It means building drill platforms on the sides of mountains so that um, companies can move in and actually conduct the drilling they they need to do to understand the ore body or to develop a resource estimate. This is the physical uh, construction, project management, and logistical work that is essential for any exploration or mining project, uh, and it's particularly challenging in extreme environments like the Yukon, like the Northwest Territories, where you're getting temperatures uh, down to negative 40, where you're in highly remote locations away from any sort of infrastructure. And what makes this interesting is Brandon has been doing this, essentially leading these projects since he was uh, a teenager. I met him when he was 19 years old. He was leading all the logistical and construction uh, aspects of a 19, $20 million project. And he's done nothing but uh, build on that for the last 10 plus years. Now he runs his own company. He consults to numerous clients. And I wanted to do this podcast today because 
Brandon and people like him and the, and the people that do this sort of work are a really, really essential part of the mining and exploration industry. And it's a component that investors rarely see. Uh, people that actually manage the sort of risks uh, and challenges in order to actually get the job done on the ground. And Brandon does a great job of describing these challenges. He talks about, you know, working in extreme weather conditions, uh, dealing with, you know, fixed wing aircraft and helicopters and all the, the really nitty gritty, difficult details of getting things done in hard places. I think this will be a extremely valuable listen to investors that want to be able to wrap their head around the challenges that uh, companies actually face uh, in complex exploration environments. And when you're thinking about investing in companies, these are the challenges you want to be considering. And more importantly, you want to be confident that the management teams have considered these challenges, are familiar with these environments, and really know what needs to be done to deliver results and perform adequately in these very, very challenging conditions. So without further ado, let me please introduce Brandon Duncan, president of Backcountry Resources. Mr. Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Jamie, happy to be here. So we are sitting here today in Vancouver in the uh, Pack Rim Hotel. We're on a suite here that you've rented for the week of Roundup. Um, how long have you been in town for? Uh, so got here on Sunday evening. And uh, yeah, it's been a long week, but uh, here we are. So this is... Um, a podcast I've been looking forward to doing some time. You and I went out uh, a couple nights ago and had some drinks, and we were reminiscing about old times and some good stories. And I thought, you know, the, I think the world needs to know who Brandon Duncan is uh, and the work that you're doing. So, could you give us? And we're going to get into a lot of this in more detail. But could you give us the thirty thousand foot view of who you are, what your company is, and sort of what you guys do? Sure. So I'm the president of Backcountry Resources, and what we do is provide uh, camps um, as well as line cutting, staking, pad building, um, and logistics for companies that are operating not only in the Yukon, but uh, northern BC, and we've worked in the other territories as well. Um, we've been active for about four years, and um, yeah, that's essentially kind of the the elevator speech uh so to speak and how old are you now brennan well, i'm 31 i'm gonna be 32 uh shortly here and um yeah we worked together um i guess it'd be 2007 yeah and uh that was a, a 19 million dollar project that was uh i wish i could go back and do that project now yeah that would be and i'm sure you do as well yeah you know, live and learn type of thing. But uh, I, I mean, not that we didn't do a, a good job, but just uh, to have that opportunity to do one of those again, uh, considering how remote it was um, and the challenges associated, um, it would it would be neat to go do that job again. Yeah. Okay. I think we should uh, so fill listeners in. So when I was, um, I believe I was 21 years old. It was one of my first jobs in the industry. I was still a student. So I was 20. I was 20 years old. And I got sent up to the Yukon uh, to do an exploration project. And it was a uranium exploration project for a company called Cash Minerals. 
run by a gentleman named Basil Botha. He's still very active in the industry today. Uh, great guy, great mentor for me. And I basically showed up in the Yukon having no idea where I was or what we were doing. They stuck us on a fixed-wing plane. Uh, we flew out of a tiny little town called Mayo, which is about a five-hour drive north of Whitehorse, which is the, the capital of the Yukon Territory. Then we flew about an hour into the Wernicke Mountains uh, to a tiny little camp, or actually quite a big camp by exploration standards, but a small camp, and got dropped off. And we were, <laughs> that was my first job as an exploration geologist. Uh, and most of what I was doing all day was getting flown out in helicopters to various parts of the property, taking uh, samples, so rock chip samples, soil samples, basically trying to get an idea of where to target drills, uh, or rather targets that would be later drilled. And I first met Brandon uh, because he was the, at the time, I guess you were the camp managers and logistics managers. And you I, were, think, uh, yeah. I think my title at the time was logistics manager and project coordinator. Yeah, and you were, I think it's important to note, you were 19 years old. Uh, you had like put together a ragtag uh, group of like high school buddies and like old timers from the Yukon and, and set them out to build these camps and run these camps and manage the logistics on an individual camp level. And I think there were three or four camps going at any given time. And you were overseeing all of that. Yeah, I kind of got thrown in the deep end, uh, kind of one of those situations where you get thrown in the deep end and see if you can swim and uh, managed to keep my head above water I think for most of it um, it was definitely challenging um, and and one experience I mean um, mm. you know there's no school on earth that provides that level of uh, education in that short a period of time I don't think yeah and I think uh, you know there are not many 19 year olds that have like, get to run the logistics of a 20 million dollar exploration program we had what two or three fixed wing planes flying? Seven fixed wing. Is that right? Uh, planes flying at any given time. And how many two helicopters? Of them were running twenty four seven. We had uh, three Hughes five hundreds. Um, helicopters. We, helicopters. We had uh, the two hundred five A plus at given times. So we had about four or five helicopters, give or take, uh, generally. On a daily basis. And there must have been half a dozen, no, probably closer to 10 drills turning at any given uh, time. I think it was six drills. Yeah. But I mean, you know, six drills is no joke, too. And so there were all these camps. Each of these camps had dozens of people at them. Uh, and yep. I mean, and what people might not understand, uh, realize sort of at home listening to this, for an operation like this, the majority of the spending is on logistics. It's on planes and helicopters and drills and moving food and equipment. And so Brandon was managing that. And can you kind of give us an idea of what what this environment is like? We're in the Wernicke Mountains. It's, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're going from a place uh, like Mayo, which is already, you know, it's a small town. It's, it's not a major hub. There's not a ton of services there. And then you're jumping off from there and going anywhere from 96 miles to 126 miles north. Um into no man's land so and and that was that was one of the challenging things as well was uh having three camps operating simultaneously out there was you know like it's not one project at that point it's like running three projects um so you and they all have unique needs um 
and you know you're trying to service those needs basically was was the uh well one of the very challenging aspects of that uh that whole um project and so it's it's highly remote it's mountainous terrain uh you know you're dropping guys off in helicopters who are then basically scratching out runways out of the dirt for these fixed wing planes to land in before we get more into to what you're doing today and where you've gone from that, maybe we should take a step back and, and talk about sort of how you got into this line of work. And I mean, you are sort of a Yukon boy, born and bred and, and grew up in that environment. But how did you get into working in mining, uh, you know, building camps, all, all the stuff that you focus on now? Yeah, Jamie, it was a complete accident. Um, so um, I was in grade 10, I believe, in high school. And uh, my uncle knew uh, a guy named Bill Wenjanowski, who uh, he was with Archer Cathro at the time. And um, so he did, uh, he did my uncle a favor by hiring me. And I went out to, uh, I got flown into a geochem project. Uh, it was four or five people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and I recall on my first day in the field, having a what have I done moment because <laughs> you're like 15 16 years old yeah at this yeah. Point. And yeah, we're, yeah and I mean uh, at the time Archie Cathro like we we did not have a sat phone in camp mm-hmm. we did not have radios we were uh, doing most of our surveying by hip chain compass uh, clinometer and um, so yeah, was your was, job to like carry a sur- bag walk survive. forward and <laughs> survive Yes. So you succeeded. We see. Yeah. No, I'm alive. <laughs> so that's good. Um, yeah. So that was. And like then, what were you doing day to day, though? Were you day to day? So we were doing contour sampling. We were doing um, I mean, and, you know, you'd hike from camp. You'd go, I don't know, anywhere from three to five miles out. And I mean, you're in the Antimony Range. It's pretty hilly terrain. Yeah. Like, uh, it's, you know, pretty steep and deep. Um, so there was. Yeah, there was that that side of it but i mean you just you you, you get you, i was totally in charge of my own self-preservation and that's something i think people in this society today lack is being in charge of your own self-preservation mm-hmm. you know everybody they want you to you know um there, there's all these avenues to you know try and push people into doing that and and it was as in raw form as uh is as exists was uh, your own self-preservation. There wasn't radios. There was no um, ability to... You You were totally responsible to that. So no one's coming to help you, really? Well, I mean, yeah, maybe if they heard yeah. me scream, but... Uh, so what are like, what are the sort of the challenges that people working in the bush, uh, you know, in the Yukon, what do, like, what do you face? Is it, I mean, there's climate, there's the wildlife. Like, what are the things you need to be aware of? Um, yeah, so, I mean, obviously, and, you know, it's not that... Uh, different from BC, etc. Um, I think the the unique thing about the Yukon is your ability to be um, distant from infrastructure. So I think that w- that would be the main thing that differs from other regions. Um, you know, it's not uncommon to be 100, 200 miles from infrastructure. Yeah. So you spent that summer out there 
in yep. the bush. Uh, did you get hooked on it afterwards? or? Yeah, after that kind of initial sticker shock of like, <laughs> you know, what have I done happened. Uh, I, you know, fell in love with the industry. So, yeah, I would have been in grade 10, so maybe 16 years old then. And, um, yeah, now I'm 31, so I guess 15 years of... Uh, you know, various geochem, um, drilling operations, camps, you name it. Um, and yeah, I, I love it. Did you, so you didn't, I mean, you weren't entirely, that wasn't an entirely foreign environment to you. You grew up hunting and fishing and, and kicking around the bush in the Yukon as well. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, those are still two of my major passions, um, hunting and fishing. So, um, and, you know, I've got a six-year-old son, and he's kind of growing up in that same environment. Um, but it's 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 a little different um, when you're doing the economic and, you know, you're kind of thrust into this environment, right? Like, you don't have that. Uh, or it, my first job was like that. Um, so I did have a background. You know, I had a healthy respect for grizzly bears. I had a, you know, um, I had a passion for the outdoors i guess um but it was it was definitely different than um you know the hunting and fishing yeah lifestyle that i grew up in it's not for fun anymore no no it's for <laughs> yeah. it's for profit yeah so there's going to be a lot of people uh listening to this who there'll be young geologists who i know will say god i wish i could go up to the yukon and and work in a field camp and now, that what we were talking about was 2007. Those were somewhat different days. There was a lot of money being spent up there. There were a lot of, I mean, truthfully, from my perspective, I just stumbled onto that job. I sent an online email, and they hired, I think, every single person that had a pulse that could do it. Um, what would you say to someone from Toronto or uh, you know, any city, a guy with a geology degree or maybe half of one that's wanting to get up there and get some of that experience? How, how would you go about doing that? You work with a lot of these companies. You see what they're looking for, what what the scale of their uh, projects are. Yeah, I mean, I just go into it with an open mind, and uh, you know, um, there, there's definitely there's there's some great projects going on up there. Obviously, as as you know, and um, I would I would just yeah go into it with an open mind, and there's. Well, and you know, it's it's funny being at this conference and you talk to like these old timers that have yeah. thirty years and they, you know, still speak so passionately about their first field season. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, you know, it, it's no matter where you end up, it's gonna be that, you know, uh formative well, you only get one time to have your first field season. So um I think that, you know, you just you go into it with an open mind and and, um, I mean, I can't, uh, really tell anybody how to get a job yep. necessarily, but, um, yeah, no, go into it with an open mind and you only get one chance to have your first field season. How many people do you guys have working at, uh, backcountry now? So we're, we kind of, uh, in the winter we're down at, you know, four or five, mm -hmm. um, in the, the, our biggest peak we were at, uh, 15 or 16 and I, I think we'll probably be around that uh that number this year um as well um we've got a uh, pretty busy season planned and um yeah so that's kind of roughly where we're at so what are the i mean okay let's take a step back so how did you go from 
sort of managing these individual projects or working with a company to starting your own business and what and then take us into like what is backcountry resources actually do what is the goal sure so um i think that my time uh on the other side of the desk managing uh contractors and and whatnot on behalf of mining companies has given me a really good uh insight to what a client is looking for so um and i've always been kind of a you know a doer a construction guy um so um to move over wasn't that big of a transition and mm-hmm. i just you know saw a need and it's like i said i'm passionate about the the industry so we yeah i started um backcountry resource about five years ago and um yeah so basically like i said the being from one side of the desk to the other you know when you're it it i can't say enough about having that experience um on dealing with contractors and and on behalf of a mining company who's obviously you know um there's there's always the uh, the adage about basically, you know, so you're building camps, you're doing, doing these things. And, you know, uh, some people look at that as, you know, meters not going in the ground, right? Right. Because it's not money that's being spent on drilling, so to speak. And, you know, they're, the better the camp, there's no way to quantify it either. Right. So you don't have, there's no measure where, you know, like everybody's happy and the camp is good. And I mean, the pads, that's a different story, but, um, you know, there's no way like, Oh, well, if we had a, to really understand the benefits of having a nice place to live and work. Yeah. And, and I mean, I can speak from having lived in those camps. Like, you know, one thing that I always remember is like there were always different cooks that were coming in, right? Cooks are and so important. The difference between a good cook and a yeah. bad cook, like, yeah. completely changed your whole like because you're there for so people were listening. Like, you're often there for six to eight weeks at a time. You're working every day. Often it's like you're walking up hills, picking up rocks all day, or you're in a dusty core shack cutting rocks in half all day. It's mm-hmm. you know it's quite arduous labor at times and. Sometimes, like, the only thing you really have to look forward to in that day is what you're having for dinner and where you get to sleep. And, well, in the conversation yeah. that, you know, the, the, the camp cook is so integral to all of these projects. And it's never, you know, it's, a, it's another thing that's hard to quantify. But, you know, she's, uh, she's a soapbox you lean on, you know, yeah. she's, uh, or he, um, you know, depending. Um, but, yeah, you go and... You, you chat with the the cook and you, you know, so they end up being kind of the mother of yeah. these, you know, 50 to 60 people that are in this camp. And it's, yeah, it's super important. That's not something we provide no. uh, cooks or what but, have you. But, but it's a good example of, of like how important these sort of, these places are for the living conditions and the effects on workers and, Absolutely. and the ability for people to maintain that lifestyle over a long period. Because, yeah. I mean, I speak from my own experience. Yep. That was really exciting when I was 20. And then by the time I was in my late 20s, you know, going off for six or eight weeks at a time was it was difficult at times. And you absolutely. I mean, I, I have a child now and I, you know, so I'm, I'm not out for those stretches that yeah. long anymore. But, you know, it is it's uh, extremely difficult to be, you know, away from loved ones and 
elsewhere. So I think anything that, you know, a, a company can do to make somebody's time there, um, yeah, more enjoyable is, is, uh, definitely important. So what is the typical field season in the Yukon? How long does that last when companies are out there drilling holes, taking samples, doing work on the ground? Sure. So it, uh, it varies. I mean, um, altitude's a big, uh, big contributing factor there. So if you're, you know, if your project's up high, it's going to be later and earlier that mm-hmm. you shut down um, and start up. So, is there an average window that you see? Average things? window, I would say, you know, uh, late May, mid May to, and then you know, it's kind of how far you want to push it. Like you know, the project we were on, we went till October, November, November twenty third, yeah. I believe. So that's unusual. Well, it gets very expensive. You're you're yeah, dealing yeah. with um, you know. Uh, you've got, you know, coil uh, heaters for your, your drill lines. You've got, you know, it, it's, you hopefully are drilling that hole if you're pushing it that that long. It's expensive and it's more dangerous as well. Absolutely. The weather and and the the daylight is a big deal too, right? Because you run, you generally run a 12, 12 hour shift with your drill day and night. But when you're getting into November, you're, you're having to run at least a 14-hour shift in the night shift because you don't have the daylight available to uh, use the helicopter to ferry those guys around. Right. So, also, okay, so there's only a narrow window where the helicopter can come in and pick them up and take them out. Yeah, so for sure. So yeah. these are guys often, so to put this into perspective for people, they are on a drill pad, which is basically a rectangle that has been often carved into the side of a mountain. They're on a, a typically a diamond drill there. The only shelter they'll often have is sort of tarps and plywood that's been set up with a little heater inside if, if they're lucky. Uh, and they're working, you know, for 12, in this case, 14 hours at a time, pulling tubes of rock out of the ground. And so it's pretty, it's pretty backbreaking. It's it's very laborious, yeah. Cold, like, uh, it's, yeah. You know, um, whether they're NRH, these rods weigh, you know, upwards of 50 to 60 pounds. And the helper, the helper is doing most of the backbreaking stuff. Yeah, uh, The yeah. driller is more of a specialized guy um, generally. But, uh, yeah, no, it's it's not easy. But I think the, the important thing to, to think about in this for, for listeners at home is that the companies that are operating there have a very very narrow window within the year to get the work done that's actually going to be adding value to their project, adding value to their company, hopefully improving the share price if you're an investor. Uh, So they often have four to six months to get everything done and then they spend the rest of the year processing that data. And, you know, it's not like working in Nevada or in West Africa where you can drive in 24-7 all year long. You have to be sure that these very logistically complex operations are running smoothly to take advantage of that, that window you have. So I think that brings me to my next question and we should do this. We should and can do this anonymously, but have you ever been in the situation where you see management teams come in that don't have Northern experience and, you know, they've completely underestimated the challenges of working in that sort of environment? Yeah, so uh, yeah, definitely wouldn't name any names, but I mean, there's there's been times where people have come to the territory and overlooked um, some of those aspects, and it's you know, but I I think that could happen anywhere, to be honest. Like if uh, you know, you come in and you're quite cavalier and you don't you know necessarily respect you know Mother Nature or you know 
any of these other contributing factors that really can affect a project severely, then you're going to end up in trouble. Um, and yeah, so definitely have seen it happen. Um, are there any stories you can share about, uh, maybe close calls or, uh, or interesting situations that have happened in your time out in the bush or, or in organizing and operating these sort of projects? Yeah. Well, I've got one great story for you, Jamie. <laughs> okay. uh, and so I was working down in Mexico, uh, and I was, I guess I'd been, it would have been just before the cash minerals thing. So I would have been 18 or 19 years old. Yeah. And, um, we got into a situation there. Uh, we were working about three kilometers south of the border. So just south of the U.S. border, okay? Yes. And uh, we were three hours from the nearest town in Mexico, which would have been Caborca. So we were running into drug camps every day. We were just doing geochem. Yeah. And uh, it was so we were working alone to start out with. Uh, we, we came back to our camp, which was just a couple of pup tents. And... Uh, we ended up, you know, we were walking back on the road and there was a bunch of thatch marks on the road. And okay. I looked at the guy I was working with and I said, did you do that? And he said, no. I said, okay, well. So what do you I mean by do thatch marks? Either. Well, somebody had taken a, you know, a limb off of a yeah, yeah. a okay. tree or whatever and scratched the road. Okay. And to cover their tracks, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So I looked at the guy I was working with and I'm just you didn't do this and I didn't do it. So why are, you know, and we're ostensibly in the middle of nowhere, but we're in a very active drug corridor. Um, and it was copper property. So we get, we get back to camp. Um, we've been robbed all our, you know, basically everything we were required to live there anymore was gone. <laughs> okay. Underwear was stolen, socks were stolen, <laughs> you name it. And I, you know, I don't know how nefarious it was. I don't know if it was a message to leave that region or it was just some people passing through that saw an opportunity, but they left things like GPSs, but they took things like underwear. So it was, it was kind of odd. So we got the heck out of there and, um, we ended up hiring, we, we, we spoke to the authorities, we tried to get armed guards, wasn't happening. We uh, ended up getting some guys locally that, you know, we'd have two guys watch camp and two of us would go out in the field, or, you know, one guy would come with each of us out in the field every day. And, um, yeah, so one day, and, yeah, um, I had purchased a, uh, it was totally legal, but it was like a, uh, kind of a pellet gun, but it had a 22 cap that went in behind it. Okay. And so it was called a Mendoza. It was totally legal. It was all, you know, above board. So we, there was one day, uh, we were, we were heading back to have these samples go out, right? So we've got, you know, bags with little bags. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're dealing with two dirt tracks in the desert as far as our roads go. And you guys have a truck or whatnot? We have a truck, yeah. 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 So one of the Mexican guys and myself are heading back to town. We take a wrong turn. We end up going a little closer to the border than we thought. We end up at a Mexican military checkpoint. (laughs) Okay. Okay. With big bags of little bags of dirt. And your pellet gun. And my pellet gun, yeah. So... The Mexican military guys, you know, they're doing the math. There's a there's a 
you know, a gringo Mexican guy, bags, little bags. And know. for those of you listening, uh, Brandon is about 6'3 with blonde hair and blue eyes and does not look like a Mexican. Yes. And uh, so they, they're doing the math. They're like, okay, done, right? These are obviously narco traffickers. They start ripping these bags open. They're full of dirt. And they're looking at me like I'm the stupidest person on the entire earth. What is this guy doing here with these bags of dirt? He must have a death wish. So we get through that. We uh, and then, then they find the pellet gun. And uh, the only way to really unload the pellet gun was to shoot it. <laughs> so, uh, and there, there's some major communication issues happening here. You don't speak Spanish, I assume. Very well. I've got a very novice uh, understanding of Spanish. So what I think they're telling me to do is to shoot this gun, to unload it. And I, you know, I clarified that as best as I could three times. I end up shooting the gun. Total miscommunication. <laughs> I'm lucky to be alive. The M16s come down on me. I drop this thing in the dirt. They, uh, so yeah. does this sound like a real gun when you shoot it? You said it's got that. Yeah, no, 20- it's got a 22 cap. Yeah, yeah. It's not like a large caliber rifle or anything, but it's, you know, it does have an audible. So were you just like shooting this thing up into the air? I shot it in the air, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that would be the closest call I've ever had. What did they eventually just let you go? They let us go. Yeah. Did they? You kept the gun too? Or yeah, they, we had to go yeah. figure out. You know, go through all the the spreadsheets that we had and figure out which soil samples they'd torn open and go and redo those lines. And you know, so uh, yeah. it wasn't. We didn't get away totally unscathed, but it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. yeah. How long were you down there for? In the end? Uh, it would have been about three weeks, but yeah. It's interesting. My uh, my first job. Uh, as a student, again, was that that same summer, uh, that same time, 2006, also in Mexico, I was in Sinaloa in this tiny little one drill camp in the middle of nowhere. It was outside of this town called Aguas Caliente. And I mean, hot water, <laughs> hot water. There's this there's a hot spring in the town, Oh wow. uh, which was by far the most redeeming quality of that town. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so. This is my first job. I was 19, and I won't tell you who I worked for, but yeah. I, I showed up. I got recommended to this by, a, by someone I knew, and I showed up in their office in Toronto. It was a one-man company. He said, I didn't know what the job was for. I didn't know where it was or what I'd be doing. He said, hey, you want to go to Mexico? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go to Mexico. And he said, good, so we're going to need you to take $10,000 in cash down. And I was like, can't we just like transfer it? We we ended up doing the money belt thing yeah. too, and like if anybody knew, yeah, yeah, that you had that Ten. many pesos on you, you would be dead. I know. Yeah. So I was. He's just like, no, it'll be fine. Just put it in your boot or something. Don't even worry about it. And I was like, okay, I really want this job. <laughs> so, but the 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 catch was it. I had to fly through Mexico City Airport, um, and I had to transfer the U.S. dollars into pesos in the airport. So I was like nineteen. I was sitting at one of these like airport booths and like having like i don't know what the exchange was something like a hundred thousand pesos and it's like if you look at that that's like half a foot of money or or so stacked up and i was just like ramming it into my backpack trying to like fit it in everywhere 
And there were like four guys just like staring at me do this. And I was like, well, I'm going to get fucking killed here. Like, this yeah. is, that's it. First job done. <laughs> and I like showed up in Mexico and I just gave it to the like, I poured the money out under the bed of the hotel room. I gave it to the geologist running the program. I was like, this is, <laughs> you got to deal with this now. It was uh, probably the stupidest thing I've ever done. And like that job and a couple other things that happened on that job were by far the like closest calls I've ever had. Well, and it just goes to show you, like, you know, we deal with grizzly bears and, you know, they're, they're just those things. But it's just what you're comfortable with, I think, at yeah. a certain point. Like, uh, bears and that the stuff that goes on in the Yukon doesn't really, you know, you get climatized to it. I'm it's a world it, you're familiar with. I'm familiar yeah. with it. And I would have, if you would have came to me any day on that job and said, hey, you know, go deal with grizzly bears and mountains and uh, cold weather, I would have done easy trade straight across so when i was up in the yukon i saw grizzly bears and especially you know flying around in helicopters how big of an impact are they do you find that they have on the operations you're running well i think it's important to mention that basically you know i've I've never had to uh euthanize grizzly bear or black bear on any camp i've ever been in and that's obviously the goal right you don't want to you're there, you know, you're sharing in that aspect, like I am a hunter and a, a fisherman and whatnot. So in my personal life, but, um, and I don't re- remember if you were on site at Lumina. No, I was, I was on another camp. So that yeah. was one of the camps of cash minerals. I was at the bear river, bear Creek. Camp. Bear river, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, we had a, we had a bear and we had a really good trick, um, that I learned. I can't even remember where I learned that from, but, um, we had a bear that was kind of getting in. And so you, you generally, you know, for your listeners there, you've got to, you know, you got to deal with your garbage, right? So generally you're, you're burning your garbage in an incinerator or, you know, burn barrel. So you're burning most of the garbage and that's always, you know, ground zero for any bear conflict you're going to have mm-hmm. in the camp. So, and you know, no matter how clean you're doing that, how good a job you're doing, that's going to be the first place they go all the time. So we had a bear that had come in a couple of times and he hadn't really, you know, wasn't, you never want a bear to be successful in feeding itself in your camp because then you have a really big problem. So, but he'd come to the burn barrel a few times. Um, and what we ended up doing was putting peanut butter on a can of bear spray, thin walled bear spray. <laughs> no. no. And I mean, you know, like, so like, cause it was getting to a point I had shot over this bear's head once. Yeah. He was getting into camp and like, you know, it, this trick saved his life and maybe somebody else's life. Who knows? Yeah. But it was getting, you know, it was coming to a boiling point. So he ended up biting this bear spray at the burn barrel, obviously didn't have a great experience there and we never saw him again. Huh? Like, not that he was dead or anything. Yeah, yeah but, but like he, he ran was, off back into yeah, the Yeah, and he wilderness. just decided to do his own thing again. And, um, yeah, you want to you wanna minimize that human-animal conflict as best you can, obviously. What would you say is the biggest risk that companies and management teams working in these remote places come up against? Like what, are, what is the biggest challenge for, in terms of safety? In, uh, in terms of safety, um, I mean, it's really hard to say. There's, you, it's obviously you know inherently a very dangerous. No, no matter what job you're doing, if you're a geologist, if you're a pad builder, if you're a driller, you know there's there's some inherent 
risks there in and of themselves. I mean, you know, aviation is, um, and, you know, I can't say enough about the pilots that we work with up yeah. there. Uh, you know, there's, after you, and as you well know, Jamie, there, you know, you get on a commercial flight after doing what we've done up there with, you know, these pilots and these small planes. Yeah. These guys fly these aircraft. They don't hit an autopilot. They don't, you know. It's very different. The approaches, game. the weather, yeah. the it's it, so. Um, in my career, it's always been aviation related. When there's been uh, some bad things happen, so I think that's a big. That would probably be the most dangerous aspect of it. Yeah, and I think that's I. That's what I thought you would say to that uh, question, and I think that's something people at home often don't appreciate. Just how different it is flying in these helicopters, flying in these small fixed wing planes yeah. uh, and the risks that geologists and pilots and, and everyone involved are taking uh, because they do crash, right? Every summer there's crashes and uh, it's uh, it's something I only really came to appreciate uh, the real risk of, you know, over the last few years because when you're 20 years old, you just assume that that's not going to happen to you. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember the project that we were on in, uh, in cash minerals, there was a, a plane crash where the, the pilot passed away just, just before I ended up getting there. And it's not a, an uncommon event. It's not an unheard of event by any means at these sort of, these sort of operations. And despite good pilots and safety precautions, you know, the weather's unpredictable and the, the flying is challenging through these mountain passes and, and everything involved. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the guys that we fly with are, you know, uh, second to none. You know, and um, they're not touching buttons in a CRJ or a you know Airbus. They're they are flying the aircraft, mm-hmm. and you know there's there's things that can happen. Yeah, so uh, that gentleman's name was Richard Rogers, and he was one of the best pilots I'd I'd flown with. He was passionate about his work, and uh, I don't I don't know what happened there, but um, yeah, that was a, that was a tragedy. Yeah. So do you guys, um, do you guys run or, you know, what is the best way for people to, to people who are going up there for the first time, uh, whether they be geologists or working in these camps, is there any training available for them to like understand better how to work in these sort of climates and these environments, uh, to, to be effective and to be safe? Uh, so every every company is a little bit different, um, and you know some of our clients. There's orientations. There's uh, bear aware courses. Uh, we do we do a an orientation as well yeah. uh, with backcountry. That, but I mean it's it's a tricky thing to you kind of have to get out there, and I think you rely mostly on people who have experience, and you gotta you know yeah. we we never you know the days of throwing guys in the deep end, see if they can swim is kind of over. Um, and, and that's a great thing, but we definitely try to have, um, if we're, if we're going to have a new inexperienced guy, he's always with somebody who's got that experience because there's, you know, you can sit a guy down for a whole day in, in the office and go through things and try to explain, you know, these challenges you're going to face and, and whatnot. But, they're all so different and your reaction is based on the input you have from this situation in my experience. So you're not going to be able to 
just run the guy through. You know, we do the orientation right. to make them aware of the challenges they might face, but every challenge is so different. So I think that, in my opinion, having inexperienced people with very experienced people for the infancy of their coming to site is so important. Yeah. Where do you, where do you find the guys that you hire? Are they mostly Yukon born and bred or do you get them from all over Canada? Yeah, it's a bit of a mix. I mean, I would say Western Canada would be like, you know, uh, a good way of saying it. I mean, there's, uh, we try to hire locally as much as possible. We've got some great first nations partners and, uh, so yeah, but I mean, um, in my experience, generally, if you get one good guy, you get three good guys. Because he they bring, taps his friends. Yeah, and and it's yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, but it's, that it works in the converse as well. Like, if you get a bad guy, you get three bad guys. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah. So, what are your plans for this summer? Uh, so, we're, we're doing... I'm, I know you've been at Roundup... Uh, uh, luring in clients and taking people out and, and meeting with uh, the people you're going to be working with. So, what? yeah, I mean, we we were ostensibly booked previous to coming down here. Really? Okay. Yeah. So, so I mean, we've got some great clients we work with: um, White Gold Corp, uh, Farweed Zinc, Brixton Metals. Yeah. Um, those are those would be our three main ones, and 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 they all have uh, super interesting uh, projects uh, happening this summer and. You know, with White Gold, they've basically going to be doubling the work that they did last year uh, with the Vertigo showing, uh, popping off. And um, so, yeah, but it's just, I, you know, the show for me, it, it, you, there's been times, obviously, you know, like 2012, uh, where you're you're hunting for work and you're, you yep. know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, burning the candle at both ends, trying to find something to do, right? Yeah. Um, but this this year has been a little different. We've, we've got uh, we've got some great clients, and and we're we're going to be busy. So it's more of an opportunity to uh, show some appreciation for your client, right? right. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of what I've been doing here this year. You know, I always think of uh, the original Yukon Gold Rush, and you know, it was like something like less than one percent of the people that went there made enough money to even pay for the ticket that they'd they'd bought uh and then the people that really made the money were the service providers um and I, I honestly think in a lot of ways that's where the real genius and the real money to be made in the mining industry is is providing be it uh material or uh any sort of service to these these companies so in your view, as a service provider in the Yukon, you know, is it a very is it a busy industry right now? I know things like you were saying, things had slowed down in 2012. From being on the ground, from doing the actual work, like, what's your view of exploration and mining in the Yukon right now, and what direction is that heading in? Uh, I mean, you know, I'm uh, no expert when it comes to that field in, in general. You know, I'm not a geologist, I'm not an analyst. I don't. Uh, I don't know 100%. I, there's some great projects in the Yukon. Yeah. Um, I think that there's going to be some more mines being built there. Yeah. Uh, based on what's, uh, you know, the exploration that's happening right now is 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 really good. They're they're actually finding things. They're putting ounces on balance sheets, um, and I think you know. And to get back to the uh, the the whole service provider uh, aspect of it, you know, 
we there's you're not going to get rich overnight being a service provider Mm -hmm. you know if you're if you're good at your job and you're able to you know get some good clients and find some good uh, projects to work on then yeah you you might make some money but the thing is you know there's uh, there's also not you're not one hole away from being a millionaire ever right you know that hole is just yeah just another hole but you're also not one hole away from being bankrupt that's true too <laughs> yeah and but you're busy these days yeah we're what about busy. your com- competitors and the other uh, vendors and service providers that you work with do you see the trend uh, you know, around Whitehorse that people, oh, there's, that the, the there's mining industry is coming yeah, back. Yeah, there's definitely growth. Like there's, um, you know, there's, we don't have a lot of local competition for the things that we actually do, but, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's definitely, you know, obviously I'm in touch with, uh, uh, we work together with a bunch of different companies and, and I think that, yeah, generally there it's, it's good. I mean, you've got Victoria Gold being built right now. You've got, uh, Coor, which Silvertip, uh, you know, Coors bought recently and, and they've, uh, they're in production. And I mean, that's a BC project, but it does definitely has a huge impact on the Yukon because it's actually, it's ostensibly a Yukon project. It's just in BC. Yeah. They're, they're, they're major, their offices in Whitehorse. They're, yeah. Yeah. And for people who aren't necessarily, uh, geographically familiar with that region, British Columbia really reaches up into the Yukon. And so there's, uh, there's some to a certain extent, like so. The, the, there, yeah. the road going into Silvertip is 23 kilometers long, and yeah. you pass the border at kilometer 15. Okay, you so go. you're literally just a hop, skip, and a jump away. But I mean, from an investor's perspective, this is interesting to see because I mean, while the Yukon and, and northern Canada in general is some of the most prospective area in the country and maybe the world, uh, it's also it's not easy. It's not easy to access. It's not easy to do work in. It's expensive and seeing these companies ramp up, seeing exploration being busy there, seeing mines being put into production. You mentioned Victoria, a uh, great project, a great example of that. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's good for the industry. It's good for Canada. It's good for the Yukon. So, oh, my phone's going off. I'm going to turn that off. Um, so in general, it's, a, it's very heartening, I think, for the mining and the exploration industry in general to see dollars starting to flow back into that uh, part of the world well and and so i mean you know uh as most of your listeners are probably aware of you know 2010 uh 11 was the craziest uh exploration season in the the yukon may have ever seen yeah but there was i, I think there was a disconnect and not with all companies but some companies you know, they were drilling holes for the sake of drilling holes and we weren't getting like, whereas this, I, I wouldn't call it a rush, but, uh, you know, this most recent, you know, bounce back of the industry, there's really good exploration being yeah. done. Well, the good there's, companies are getting financed, right? Abs- yeah. Absolutely. And uh, good projects finance themselves. Right. Um, and so you've got, you've got actual potential mines, you know, we're not, having you know potential moose pasture etc like the the exploration that's being done now and not that it was all bad back then like there's there's definitely good people but you had these companies coming in like just stake me anything yeah anything in the yukon because i can sell that right and this is something we've talked about a lot on this podcast and other things we've produced is you know you're you have to find these management teams that are actually motivated to find a mine to make a discovery to build out a deposit and not 
management teams that are perhaps more mo- focused on raising and then spending money. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> that's uh, well, and that's yeah something the industry's dealt with for for years. And I mean, uh, yeah, and even from a service provider's aspect, you, you know when you know when they're serious. The yeah. yeah. So what sure. what are some of the things you you know what are the some of the things you notice about the guys that are serious that you know are very driven to make a discovery to do good work and the guys that are perhaps less so yeah i mean uh well i guess there's there's no real litmus test for that but uh you've got when you sit across the table uh, you know you can you can see passion and you can understand um their intentions as far as you know anybody can talk a good game but you you know the guys that are serious it's 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 not something i could you know give you a spreadsheet to sort out or anything like that it's you know when these guys are passionate about putting ounces on the balance sheet they're passionate about exploration they're passionate about rocks and yeah so do you ever personally make investments into any of your clients or any of these um, companies yeah no we, we we have a few investments uh like from a company aspect that uh with our clients but I, it kind of, um, yeah, no, it's good to be invested in any project you work on, whether it's, you know, morally, mm-hmm. uh, financially, et cetera. But, um, yeah, so we, we do have a few investments with our clients. Um, it's not a big part of what we do. Good. Now I want to be cognizant of your time. This is a busy week and everyone's running around to meetings, but what should our listeners know about backcountry? Uh, what should, you know, companies or management teams that are working in the Yukon and, uh, you know, want to get in touch with you or want to learn more, uh, what should they know about backcountry resources? Yeah, well, I mean, you can find our website. We're uh, bcryukon.ca. Uh, um, that's how you could figure out how to get in touch with us. Um, and, you know, it's even the great thing about the Yukon, like there's, I, I get a lot of phone calls sometimes where it's not something we can help them with. But there's somebody that we know or, you know, we can put them in touch with somebody who can. Um, it's a small, small place. Um, 28,000 people live in Whitehorse. And I think the overall population of the territory is 35,000, right? So it's a... And how many of those do you know? Oh, well, I'm not <laughs> entirely sure. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a real blessing. I mean, you know, it's a small small place but there's there's a, there's a lot of depth there too so um and and with us yeah like i said we do uh hard and soft walled camps pad building line cutting staking and logistics and that's kind of our bread and butter but uh if there's if there's other things that you know people require obviously you know there's uh there's a bit of a menu as far as exploration goes and if we don't if we can't do it, we'll put you in touch with somebody that we trust that can do it. Um, yeah, so that'd be good. And we will put all those links in the show notes so you can get in touch with Backcountry Resources and Brandon should you wish to do so. All right, so thank you very much, and I will let you get back to your day. Okay, thanks a lot, Jimmy. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.